Welcome to Pitchside Perspective Podcast with your hosts Stuart Sharples and Jack Kolazar. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Pitchside Perspective Podcast. We have a special guest with us today, an up-and-coming German author and a current coach within the FC Augsburg Academy, Simon Schrottl. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into youth development in Germany, but there is more to it than you might think. We'll be addressing the changes taking place in the aftermath of the summer unexpected results for Germany in recent years. It's a conversation that promises insights, revelations, and perhaps a glimpse into the future of German football. Talking about a revelation, Jack, how are you, mate? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Anytime I get to listen to you try and pronounce a tricky name, it's always a good time, Stu. Yeah. Exactly. But um, no, really looking forward to this episode. Um, obviously, we, I spoke to Simon recently and uh, very knowledgeable in the German game and looking forward to really getting into it about what's going on in Germany and obviously what's happened in the past and obviously the, the rivalry right between England and Germany. Jack, what's, what's probably one of your favourite England-Germany games? Uh, well, I think as a kid, you kind of, I remember like a VHS tape where I had like the old 66 World Cup final you know, on there watching that. Um, and then in terms of live, I definitely remember being in my living room watching the 5-1 game uh, with Michael Owen and Emil Heskey up front, tearing Germany apart. And then I guess in more recent times, obviously the Lampard goal or no goal where England were knocked out. Um, so ups and downs. Yeah, definitely a, a lot of ups and downs. Um, I was actually pleasantly surprised when I looked at a bit of research of who's won more games, England or Germany, and England have just pipped it 14 to 13. So I, I was shocked by that. But like you, one of my favourite memories was uh, the 5-1 win. I think I was in, a, in Spain on holiday and it was just the case of like just trying to watch it on a tiny screen. Um, but it's always been great games between them. So yeah, really looking forward to having Simon on. Um, Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks no. for the invite. I'm excited to be here. No, thanks for coming on. And as usual with uh, with our guest, Jack is now uh, going to take turn of asking you some questions. Yeah, uh, we'll do the five quick or not so quick fire questions. So first of all, name. Simon Schrottle is the German pronunciation. <laughs> A little bit different to Stu's attempt earlier there. <laughs> Uh, favorite team? Well, um, not that much a fan of one team. Obviously, Augsburg because I used to play there, I coached there, and but then more um, fan of Pep Guardiola teams, I would say. So following his path, watching his teams. That's interesting. That's you're not the first person that have, have said that you follow a, a manager rather than a team. That's interesting. Um, favorite ever sporting memory. Well, um, probably um, me being a fan, um, I went to a, a Boca Juniors game in Buenos Aires um, and the atmosphere in the stadium, it's always been a dream of mine to go there. The atmosphere in the stadium is, well, I cannot describe it. Um, just go there. Just enjoy. It's, yeah, on, it's, on, it's on the bucket list for sure. Yeah, yeah, every time I see that on TV, it looks unbelievable, the atmosphere, the kind of just energy. It just means it's like life or death to those guys. Yeah. And then just as an extension question, because me and Stu shared our England v Germany memories, any uh, England v Germany memories that stick out to yourself? Well, the Lampard goal, obviously. 
because it, <laughs> it came across my Instagram feed a couple of days ago. I don't know why. Um, and it, the, the picture shot it was clearly in because from what I remember, there were no like pictures that showed completely whether it was in or not. And I think that picture showed that it was in, but well, maybe it was, it was Photoshop too. I don't know, but yeah, that goal. Yeah. It's still a dagger to my heart, that goal. <laughs> okay. And then next up, good question is favorite ever kit. Boca Juniors. Nice. Um, um, actually he doesn't have Riquelme on his name. He has Roman. And when you walk into my apartment, um, I have the jersey framed up there with the number 10 and the Roman and the yellow one. I have oh, the blue okay. one as well, but yeah, the yellow one, I love that one. Oh, nice. The yellow one. Okay. I was thinking the blue with the yellow on there, but yeah, the yellow one. Nice. And last one is the best player that you've seen live. Well, unfortunately, the actually the best players that I saw live didn't perform. Um, I, um, I saw Messi, um, but it wasn't a friendly, so he didn't really do anything. I saw um, Ronaldinho and uh, Ronaldo Adriano because I watched the Brazil game in the 2006 World Cup, which was, which was in Germany. Um, but they were all well, too old. So, yeah, got to see them, but did not really get anything out of them. So I think I have to go with uh, Eden Hazard because I watched him in the 2018 World Cup against uh, France. It was the semi-final, And, yeah, he was just running the show there. Some pretty good players to watch Hazard at his peak, and then maybe the other guys, yeah, quality yeah. players, but maybe not at their at their best. But yeah, definitely some strong answers there. Stu, before we move on, let me ask you your trivia question for the week. It's my turn to ask you a question, right? I'm ready for you. Might need a little bit of help. You normally do, but just talking about kind of inter international teams, major competitions. So there are four England players that have played in six major tournaments in their career and you name the four players that played for England and played in six major tournaments have a little think we'll revisit at the end yeah I'll have a think we'll come back at the end and uh, yeah as usual one or two normally spring to your mind with these questions but I feel like there's a stumbling block there somewhere um, but yeah Simon I might need a little bit of your help there at the end but we'll see we'll see but um Simon, yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, as, as I introduce you as uh, that up-and-coming author, um, tell us a little bit about the, the book that you've, you've wrote. Well, the, my, my most recent book and also my, my biggest book so far is called um, Positionen in, in Modernen Fußball, which translates to Positions in Modern Soccer. Um, well, it's about, it's about the problem that I've experienced myself. You go get a coaching license and then they tell you, okay, so you can... Build up the game from a back three by dropping a by dropping a midfielder into the back line. And but what you never really talk about is when does it make sense to drop a midfielder? Like it doesn't make sense to drop a midfielder like Gattuso, for example, um, because he's not going to help you in the build up. But it makes sense to drop someone like Pirlo. And what I did is I basically went through all the positions and that we have on a on a field. And I put them into subcategories. For example, I have like a deep lying playmaker like Pirlo. Then I have like the holding midfield, I have a destroyer type um, and so on. And, and I did that for every position. And then I kind of like explained why it makes sense to play a certain formation with certain kind of players and why it doesn't make sense to play certain formations with other players. That's interesting. I'm sure I mean, uh, a lot of research has gone into that. 
have you found um that you have a particular style and formation that you like enjoyed playing with for me it's always been the um, 442 with the diamond in midfield um even though i never really got to play in it a lot but i just love it because you have two strikers you have um, four central midfield players where you can buy it, where you can combine um so that's one formation i like a lot and then also right now with my three um, with my team we're playing 352 which is basically the same formation just drop that the deep line midfielder into the the back line and have a back three so yeah those are right now kind of my go-to formations but i'm not that big into formations because i think as coaches we just have to look what what material we have what player material we have and then we have to make the most out of it and it doesn't matter whether we play 442 flat or 433 or whatever it is we just have to get the best out of the players that we have that's interesting because it definitely sounds like you're letting the players and then choose the formation after seeing the players not trying to pick players that would suit your formation and obviously now you're working with younger players do you try and mold those players into those if you have a a central midfielder, for example, are you looking to let them kind of develop into one of those styles of either a Perla or a Gattuso? Are you trying to mould them into what you see the future of football being? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, first thing, um, I think that for the youth teams, you should try to to have the players play as many positions as possible because for me, the future of football is no positions or no fixed positions. Well, you might start in one position, but I think that, for example, centre-backs should be way more included into into scoring goals than they than they do right now. Like that's it's not enough, in my opinion. I think the there are already some teams, for example, um, Hamburger SV, um, who play like that in Germany. Um, they have very fluid positions. Um, they they uh, are really creative, and that creates a lot of problems for the opposition team, especially and with video analysis and all that kind of stuff, it's really easy to pick a team apart. So it will be in the future, it will be more about the creativity of the players than about rigid formations. So yeah, um, forming the players, it should be about um, forming them as, as broadly as possible. And then the second thing is, I think as an amateur coach, you have the issue that you cannot really pick your players. You have a certain set of players i cannot go to finland and scout there and, and pick a player like i don't know every bundesliga team can so i have to make the most of what i have i mean with the scouting possibilities the teams nowadays have uh, in the in professional on the professional level they can do that so you might you you might be able to argue for for saying okay i want to play 442 flat i want to scout the right players for that but on the amateur level, that's just not possible. I think I've been in uh, complete agreement with you there. I definitely see football moving to a place where formations are almost just a starting position and, and you know, not we will completely lose that rigidity of here's your position, here's your area of the field and move much more towards kind of a, a much freer way of playing and almost formations become a thing of the past and it's more about players having, having roles on the field rather than formations. So... Um, if people want to check out that book, where can they find it? It's on Amazon. Excellent. We'll uh, we'll have to we'll tag it in the podcast. We'll get it out there. But I mean, just from the the short description there, it sounds like a very interesting read for. And we have a lot of coaches listening to this podcast, so we'll uh, we'll be sure to get it out there for people to see for you. 
I'm working on getting it into English too, but <laughs> might take another year because I have another book coming in German. So very good. Yeah, we'll be looking out for those ones. Um, and then just in recent times, obviously, sad news across the whole world, football world, and particularly in Germany with the passing of uh, Franz Beckenbauer. So I just wondered if you wanted to just take a moment to, in terms of your perception as a German football fan, player, coach, what he meant to the country and the, and the kind of football and supporting community in, in Germany too. Yeah, unfortunately, I never got to see him play because I'm too young. I just know my dad's stories about him and about him playing passes with the outside of the foot. So, yeah, he, he's, he's an, an innovative player. Um, he kind of transformed the, the sweeper role into a playmaker role. So that's something that he, he, he did and that future generations really had to do as well then because he was the first one to do that. Um, he is an absolute icon here in Germany. Like everybody knows him, everybody respects him. Um, especially, especially that thing, that, the passing with the outside of the foot. And um, that's something that you hear some old coaches shouting, hey, don't pass with the outside of the foot. That's something only Beckenbauer, Beckenbauer can do. So, yeah, absolute legend here in Germany. And I think for a reason. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I remember as a kid, like if, if a defender tried to kind of start passing the ball and spraying the ball around, someone would shout like, who do you think you are, Beckenbauer? That's almost like the biggest compliment you can give, right? Of like, everyone is then compared to that guy because he was the innovator and the leader. Yeah, no, he was, uh, he's definitely an icon wherever you go, right? Not just in Germany, but obviously over here in the United States, he was uh, a big icon, obviously coming out to New York. But yeah, what a player he was. And uh, we, uh, yeah, a, a very sad time at the moment, We obviously, with his passing. So, uh, Simon, in terms of uh, the Bundesliga at the moment, Harry Kane, are you looking after him for us? Are you, uh, are you taking good care of him at, at Bayern Munich? How, how's, he, how's he getting on? Yeah, I think the, most of the teams are not happy that he made a move to Germany <laughs> because he's been scoring like crazy. Uh, he's really he's really made a mark here so far. And I think he's first in the in the goal scoring list. But it's not only about his scoring; it's also about his link up play, the way he makes his teammates look better. Uh, it's just amazing the way he plays and I think he's really worth his money because there was a lot of debate about the price tag I think it was 100 million um, and Bayern is always rather rather conservative with spending a lot of money and so there was a lot of people saying oh do we really need him is that really fair to blame to to pay that much money but I think he silenced everybody it's it's one of those right he's gone to Germany he's gone to a big team in Bayern Munich and he's gone there to win titles, but there might be another team in the Bundesliga that might stop him from doing that in his first year, and that's Bayer Leverkusen. How good of a season have they had this year? I mean, Xabi Alonso's got them playing some really good stuff, and he's impressing a lot of people, not just in Germany, but around the world. Yeah, they are one of those teams that I actually, because I said at the beginning um, that I really like to follow coaches and, and teams, um, and Leverkusen is one of the teams that I actually watched a lot in the last couple of weeks because they're so interesting to watch. And yeah, they are actually playing kind of positionless. So they have some positions, yeah. But especially the the front three with Hofmann, Wirtz and Boniface are really, really fluid. Um, they can interchange, they can pop up everywhere on the field. Um, and then also the, 
the right center half, Kusunu. Um, is a really interesting player who might play at a better team next year. Um, so yeah, they are amazing. Um, just a little sad, I think, when the Africa Cup of Africa Cup of Nations starts in, I don't know, should be soon, I guess. Um, they have Boniface, and they have Tapsuba, they have Kusunu, and so they have three starters missing, and that might be a tricky one for them. Yeah, and Bayern, Bayern are just such a, a powerhouse. So it, it's a little bit like Man City in, in the Premier League. You can never rule them out the question. They're always going to be there or thereabouts. And if Kane continues to score how he is, then you can't really see anything other than Bayern Munich once again winning the league. True. But <laughs> I think, because I've, I watch the Bundesliga every year, obviously, um, Leverkusen is closer than any team in the last couple of years, even though Dortmund was close last year, but for me it was more due to Bayern being bad um, than to Dortmund being good. So yeah, if a team has a chance, then it's Leverkusen. I hope the Africa Cup doesn't mess them up. Then we so, see. So obviously you spoke there about Kane coming across to the Bundesliga, doing pretty well so far, um, and that's a bit of a loss to the Premier League. Anytime you lose a, a top player from your league, it's it's a bit of a loss, but. How is the, the Premier League and even English football as a whole seen from, from a German perception? When they look at the Premier League, do they, do they you know, I think people in England um, maybe egotistically just assume that everyone thinks the Premier League is the best league in the world. Would you say that's, that's the same thought in, in Germany? Probably yes. I think so. I think it's the, the overall opinion is yes. Um, I don't like watching it as much, to be honest. Um, I prefer the Spanish league because I prefer the Spanish football. But then on the other hand, you have to be honest, in, in the Premier League, there are so many good teams. So I obviously would always watch Arsenal against Liverpool before watching, I don't know, Getafe against uh, Villarreal, for example. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the league with the most money and it's also the most exciting league overall, I guess. It's just something you you can you can coin like that so it's 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 the best league yeah i would agree especially yeah. especially when you compare like the i don't know 15th place from the premier league to the 15th place of the bundesliga i would say the premier league is better yeah that, that depth of depth of talent and quality is probably the the biggest difference but i do sometimes wonder you know if the english clubs do like to throw the money around and pick up the best players from around the world and and how that's perceived in, by other leagues and, and fans of other leagues when they see, you know, their best players getting taken away from their leagues, which the English fans have had done to them this time with, with Kane leaving. Is there any kind of a dislike towards the league in that sense at all or no? Yes. <laughs> I think I think there are a lot of... I think Germany is, is, a, is a country with a lot of really conservative people, especially when it comes to, to, to football. Um, so they don't want to have investors. They don't want to have money. They just want to have teams playing, um, people watching. Especially when you when you look at the second league in Germany. I think I, I, I saw um, I saw a picture last time that the second the, so the second Bundesliga is the league with the fifth highest attendance in Europe um, in the stadium. So Germans are crazy about football, but what they don't want is they don't want um, they don't want um, expensive tickets, they don't want expensive um, TV shows, they don't want that kind of stuff. 
they want to watch their teams they want to to have it the way it was 50 years ago so those people they obviously dislike the premier league a lot i, th I think yeah I, i've even got friends who go across germany to watch games because in terms of that match day experience for german fans and especially the value for money they get you know being able to go watch the best teams at reasonable prices and, and have a good experience at games even down to the cost of a beer and not paying stupid prices or things like that I think the English league has a lot to learn from the German leagues. And, um, but I don't know if they're willing to do that because at the end of the day, the money, the money is the driving factor in, in the English league. Cool. Oh, definitely. Um, but Simon, I'd love to, to kind of get into the nitty gritty of Germany and looking back 2014 on top of the world, right? World cup winners, number one country to now being 15th best country in the world. And I, I saw a stat that blew my mind that you sacked a manager for the first time last year. And a lot has gone wrong, right, for Germ for the national team and for Germany in the last, say, 10 years, obviously crashing out of the prior two World Cups in the group stage. In your opinion, what's gone wrong with Germany? Well, so first of all, Germany is, um, when it comes to population, the second biggest country in Europe behind Russia. Um, so we always we will always have good play players no matter what we do because uh, we have a huge population and then also we have um, only football like there's there's no other sport here um, at least not by a distance um, so we will always have a solid team I, I still think that the players that we have right now are solid for me the problem is when we talk from a macro perspective so when we really look at the the, the broad thing I think we we lack an identity. I think we tried to run and behind the Spanish philosophy um, with playing a lot of passes and we kind of lost the one against one players. Um, and we also lost our German physicality and the ruthlessness and having a proper number nine, having proper center backs who can defend. Um, I think in 2014, it, it was better, especially on those crucial positions. Um, but it was still not all good when you really um, remember the World Cup, we had we got really lucky against um, Algeria. We got really lucky in the group stages already. Um, tied to Ghana, only was by only one by one goal uh, against the US. Um, then we had, I mean, we got lucky against France, um, 1-0. We got well, we had the Brazil game. Um, I guess that's that's just out of the equation. Those games happen every every hundred hundred years, and then in the final. And for me, Messi was not 100% fit and Di Maria didn't play. So, yeah, we, we won the title, but for me, it, it, it was not convincing at all. So I've always, um, I always raised my finger um, and I was never a big fan of, of Jogi Löw, uh, the, the old coach, even though he had success, because for me, it's not that hard to have success with that team. Um, but yeah, we won the title, so everything was good. But the truth is, for me, not everything was good. Um, and then... Yeah, I think they the way the the game was played in Germany is is a problem for the players because we have too many good coaches in the country, and the problem is when you have too many good coaches, the coaches are the stars, and um, the coaches try to impose their tactics and and their their tactical thinking and all that kind of stuff on the players, and if that happens too early, um, then the players will not develop creativity and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it's always um hard um when you have good play when you have good coaches 
players will counter problems, in my opinion. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I think that, that kind of almost starts with the top because even when we spoke about Bayer Leverkusen earlier, before we even spoke about any of the players, we spoke about Xabi Alonso. So maybe it's a cultural thing that starts in the Bundesliga and, and trickles the whole way down of, of the coach wants to be the biggest name in the squad almost. Well, maybe. And, and I think we have a lot of good coaches. The, the thing is, to me, senior football is a whole lot different to youth football as a coach. In youth football, for me, the role of the coach is to be more of an, yeah, a, a person who creates problems um, who gets uh, who sets up games so the kids can play, um, who makes sure that they have uh, small numbers, enough balls, enough goals, and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the senior level, it's about winning games, um, and it's about making the most out of the the material you have at hand. So if you don't have players like um, Ancelotti, for example, is is the perfect coach who just lets go, um, and he gets along with it as long as he has a good team. But as soon as he has a team like Everton, he, there's no way he's he can do anything. So he's Ancelotti for me is a perfect youth coach because he just lets go. But um, for me, he's not a good senior level coach. Unless you have the best players in the world, obviously. Well, that's an interesting take on it as well because, like, you look at the team that that Germany had around that that 2014 period, and your spine was so strong. You had like the likes of Hummels, who was a leader at the back, and you had Philipp Lahm, who again was a leader. You had so many leaders around in different positions, and I feel like it was such a heavy reliance on those players, and there was no kind of transformation to the next player and then passing it on. It was kind of keeping hold of your favourite like project and not willing to let go and think outside the box. But Germany have produced some exciting young players, but then to your point about following the, the Spanish model, I think it was uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger who said, it's not us about playing the, the short tick attacker style. That isn't Germany. Like you said, Germany are the, the ruthless nature about them. So do you feel it was almost a case that when you, when you won the World Cup, it was almost like a, an ego saying, you know what, we're the best. We don't have to do anything else. We can just kind of take our foot off the gas so beer and just kind of ride over next to it. And then the following World Cup, you're out in the group stages. So it's almost like a smack in the face almost. I think... We copied the Spanish style um, without the defensive part. Um, I feel like when you look at the German players right now, um, they really like to play when they have the ball. Um, but when you think back about Guardiola's teams, the way they counter-pressed when they lost the ball, um, which is kind of like the dirty work, which is actually something the German players should be able to do. Um, but I think we lost that. I think we want to control the ball. Um, and as soon as we lose it, we have no plan what to do. And this is, this is something that probably we were too successful in 2014. And then people were saying, oh, we're so good. We're so good. We just have to make it beautiful now because we're already that good. So now we need to do it in style. Um, and that's obviously not how you can win. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those, right? They, they kind of, wrote, like you said, they rode their luck a little bit. And that luck almost punished you in some way. Because if you didn't win that World Cup in 2014 things could have been a whole lot different in years building up to that. And that could have been the moment they gone, we actually need to change that. So when you're getting knocked out in the group stages, there's articles out there that the like the German association have now gone, we need to look to change this, right? So what from your obviously coaching in Germany, what have they now started to implement to make changes and get back on top of the world? 
So starting with the next season, um, Fanilio, uh, which is a uh, fun and Nino, so the Spanish word for for kid, um, is introduced for all youth teams. I don't know um, until eleven or something. Um, so it's three v three on two goals respectively. And which is a huge step into the right direction because it just gets the kids to play um, away from the seven against seven and where just the strongest kids can dominate. Um, but um, on the other hand, you also have to say we are um, about, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years too late because the the founder or the inventor of Foninho, Horst Wein, is actually German and he published his book on Foninho in 2009. And in Germany, nobody wanted him. They said, ah, no, we don't need that. We are good. Everything is good. The way we do it, why, why change anything? And then he went to Spain and the Spanish Federation um, worked with his methods already before. Um, so that's why they always uh, managed to produce perfectly, uh, technically perfect players, um, which is something that we lack. I don't want to argue that we have bad players. Um, that's just not the case because, as I said before, um, football is everywhere here. Um, and we just have so many people, so it's just uh, a statistical thing that we always have good players, no matter what um, the coaches do or what the federation does. Um, but yeah, we're get, definitely getting back on track right now. Yeah, I was I was looking into like the new structure and what they're trying to do, obviously with the two v twos and the three v threes, and then Funinho. It's it's all about going back to the human element of making it fun and enjoyable for the kids. Um, I saw a quote when I was looking this up and it was a case of you wouldn't give a child an adult pair of shoes and tell them to sprint because they're going to fail. You have to give the child a child appropriate pair of shoes. So then they're able to learn and be able to have somewhat of some success. So what do you see are going to be the successes around building from the two V twos and gradually building up from that? What do you, what do you think is going to be successful and why is it going to work? There's two two comp components to that for me. Um, the one is you like the players have more fun. They enjoy playing football more, so you have more more players in general in the teams. You don't have dropouts, um, or not as many as as you have right now. I mean, especially when the kids um, grow older. And then the second t the second thing is obviously you have the the quality of the players improve by a lot because. Um, yeah, it's just it's just about about ours. It's about deliberate practice. And if you think about deliberate practice, it's it's playing. It's playing. It's two against two. And for me, it's always important that you play against um, people that are about the same quality that you are, because otherwise you're not gonna have anything out of it, and the other guys will not any, have anything out of it as well. Um, but they with the tournaments. And so the the Faninho is set up in tournaments. So you play three against uh, three on field one field two, field three, and so on. The winner team goes a field up, the loser team goes a field down. So after three or four games, um, you have very, very equal games um, where you have teams that are about the same strength against each other. And so every kid can develop um, at his or her own speed, which is something that is necessary and amazing. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like it's definitely the right way to go. And obviously you speak about, again, we home in on this fun element. If you ask a five-year-old or you ask an 18-year-old, what's the best part about going to training? Well, it's playing the game at the end and playing games and scoring goals and enjoying it. So you, ha it's so important to really look back and say, right, 
for a, an under six and under seven player, how are we going to make it fun and beneficial? And it's going to be by playing games at such a two v twos and three v threes because the main part of it, they're going to be on the ball more often than not. Whereas I look back at like my childhood and playing, you're you're six years old and you're going straight into seven v seven or eight v eight. You're probably touching the ball once every maybe two three minutes, depending on what position you're playing. So them now and the German FA looking at maximizing the ball rolling time of these players, you're going to gain a holistic player, right? You're going to have so much more game intelligence. That's surely got to be one of the biggest perks, right? To have these intelligent players growing as they get older. Yes. And I think that's the biggest thing that the Spanish players have, game intelligence. Every Spanish player that you see is intelligent. And it's not it's not only in football. I don't know if you guys watch basketball or handball. Um, the Spanish know how to play. Like they are just interact with the teammates, make runs for teammates, um, offer them, give them options. Um, it's just amazing. I actually listened to a basketball pod- podcast um, last week. And there was a guy on from Bayern Munich basketball team, which is a very good basketball team here in Germany too. And he said um, a couple of years ago, they went to Spain um, and they played those small teams and they got smashed by them. They were like, why is this happening? Like, why is this, is this small team beating Bayern Munich in basketball? And well, then they found out obviously what they do is play. They play two against two, three against three all the time from from a very small age. And that's what that's what develops players. No, and, and the interesting part as well with that is the key word is developing the players. We want these players to to learn all facets of the game. And playing such small sided, you're gonna ha- expect players to be doing every part of the game. They're gonna be attacking, they're gonna be defending. But one of the key parts that I've I've looked up was in terms of the restarts. Um, when a goal is scored at the youngest age, those players that get subbed out and the next players get subbed in and the importance of there's no coaching and there's no officials. It's just letting the game manage. What's your take on there being no coaching? Do you, do, are you a believer in that or do you believe there needs to be maybe some coaching? Well, I'm a big believer of no coach um, in that age because those kids have to learn so many things um, by themselves and they just have to make many mistakes um, so they can learn. And there's actually a good quote from Arsene Wenger. And he said, from the age, uh, from from five to 12 years, it's better to have no coach than a bad coach. Um, I would say it's no coach is needed. Um, not not on the from the instruction point of view. I mean, for the for the organization of that kind of stuff, yes, um, because the kids will just run behind the ball, and then um, it's it's better if you have a coach who plays in the next ball and all that kind of stuff. True, um, but it's not a coach; it's more like an organizer of the of the games and uh, someone who, okay, today we play two against two, tomorrow it's three against three, and um, today it's on small goals, tomorrow it's on big goals, today it's in a long field, tomorrow it's on a short field. That kind of stuff, yes, but. Don't tell a player what to do. Like, yeah, yeah it's no, just not necessary. Yeah, it's important because I find, especially at the amateur level, the grassroots level, coaches who may not be qualified or educated within coaching, you'll just end up, they'll become a joystick coach and they'll just tell the players exactly what to do. And it's the parents. What In terms of the parents, what has been the the review from parents? Are they liking it? Are they not liking it? What, what's kind of been the... Uh, the conversations happening 
I can tell from my um, because I told you I have a, I have my own football school, and the huge problem is if you don't act as that coach that corrects everything, and the parents will say, "Oh, he's not a coach. He's not doing anything." Um, but that my work start, started before the training that I invested about an hour about thinking, okay, what do I have to do to get the kids to dribble? What rule do I have to invent to get the kids to do that and that and that? That's something that especially uneducated parents, uneducated in the football sense, and parents don't see. Um, and I think they prefer a coach who says, oh, in this situation, use your left foot, do a step over, pass into the front foot and all that kind of stuff. And I always get confronted. So other coaches ask me, so what do you do if a player always plays a pass in the air or that kind of stuff? And I don't know, this has never happened. Like when I get, when I let the kids play and I give them some time and I give them the, the appropriate ball size, they don't do that kind of stuff. They don't make those technical mistakes. And if they, and if they, if they commit those mistakes, well, then they need, I don't know, a hundred more game hours and then they're gone. So take it easy, give the kids time and yeah, relax on the sideline. But that's hard because then you might not be seen as a good coach. Yeah, so this has obviously come in in the last 12 to 18 months and then I believe it's being mandated that as of the start of next season, the 24-25, every region within Germany have to be adopting this approach. I'm assuming there's probably going to be like other countries and countries that I've worked in that there's going to be coaches who are set in their own ways. So we've just spoken about the parents' perception. What has been that you found some of the coaches' perception? Like for some coaches, it's going to be hard, I'm sure, to to put a zip on it and not be able to talk sometimes. So how have you found that part of it? I think um, hard to answer because... There are those coaches, there are those coaches. Um, some people will never change. Um, no matter what arguments you have, they will say, no, football is a game of 11 against 11. So you'll never get those. Um, but I guess I guess um, it's just something that, that you have to do over and over again. And every year you get a certain percentage more and more and more um, that realize, okay, this makes sense. Um, but then the whole perception of the coach has to change as well, because we cannot really say, oh, this coach doesn't do anything. He's just standing there on the sideline. Uh, that has to change too. And I, and honestly, I have to say, like, once the kids are 13, 14, I also start with principles. So I say, okay, so once the ball goes forward and once you're overplayed, turn go behind the ball so you can counter press or give your teammate an option. Yes, that kind of stuff. I absolutely agree that this is necessary and this can help can help the players but always as an invitation so hey why don't you do that or i think you should do that and then you give the kids time and then he might do it and if he doesn't do it okay then he will not improve but then it's also not the player who will make it pro interesting because it's, it's really changing a whole a whole culture and a culture that in the past has been successful you know you have won world cups and it is hard to make change, and especially when it comes to changing culture. The players probably change quite quick. They enjoy it. They get to play games. The coaches, I think, you know, good coaches who are open-minded, who look at the evidence and look at the reasoning, will go with it uh, and be convinced and work with it. And I, I do think that the sometimes the hardest people to convince are probably the parents of those players. And I think 
in America, it's even harder because of the pay-to-play model where parents are paying money for their kid to be coached. And if they don't see, you know, coaching taking place, they might have something to say about that because of the cost implications with it as well. Um, so it might even be harder to implement that culture change in America too. Yes, I, that's the same thing that I have with my own football school, where obviously the parents pay too. Um, but I'm doing my thing. Um, I educate my parents and I tell them, okay, this is how I'm doing it. Because most of my um, most of the other football schools they do it differently, um, zero evidence base, but that's just how they do it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, everybody has to know um, himself what um, they think is is correct and has to put his or her money where he thinks is best. And yeah, another important thing that I've experienced um, sporting things aside is the personal development of the players. If you have a coach that's always saying, oh, do this, do this, do this, then we won't get any leaders on the field. So especially what we do in Augsburg, um, we really try to be quiet um, in critical game situations. And when players ask us something, we say, hey, guys, figure it out yourselves. And then you see what players step up. Yeah, no, it's interesting you, you're saying there about being the quiet coach. And obviously part of one of your roles, of your many roles, obviously at, uh, at Augsburg, how have the club taken to obviously the changes? Is it a case of now you've kind of hit the reset and you're looking to develop from the bottom up rather than looking at going from the top down? Yes, it's. I think it's more bottom up because the the coaches from the um, from the younger age groups they talk talk with each other and the coaches from the older age groups talk with each other with each other. Um, and yeah, so it's under nines until under thirteens. Um, which are in a really good exchange and especially in that age group we are really going towards a more um, game-based approach and yeah no no shouting at the players and no instructions all that kind of stuff is uh, I think is right now at least in the professional environment is there um, in a non-professional environment it's it's not there yet no, it's interesting, obviously, saying from like the U9 level up, I was reading an article, um, and you might be able to confirm if this is true, but Bayern Munich were looking at scrapping, I think, under 11 and below. They're only looking at now bringing in their academy 11 years old and above. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's true. They did that. Um, I think they can afford to do it because they can just pick their players. Um, you have other teams around like us, and then you have 1860 Munich, which is the second biggest team in Munich. I think they cannot afford to do it. In my opinion, it should be something that um, comes from the federation, that no professional team is allowed to have a team below the, under, I don't know, 11th, maybe. Um, but if you want to do that, you have to improve the quality of the, um, of the other teams because the players will be there. And I think that's not the case. I think um, as long as the players are in a bad environment overall, where they are the, by far the best player on the team and they can do whatever they want to and um, they're not really challenged and don't get good coaching or good training, um, then that might be a problem. But overall, I agree. And there's no need to have uh, under nines, under tens, because well, a lot of the players will get kicked out later anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those, it sounds like the, the DFB are 
trying to obviously mandate that every region has this new format as of next year. And it's almost, it sounds like it's a case where, look, we're going to have from five years old to 10 years old, regions are going to, and independent training schools like yourself and maybe grassroots clubs are going to develop these players using this module. And it's almost like a, a set of guidelines. So like nobody's really breaking out of it so that when they get into 10, 11 years old, then they can be looked at maybe from a maturity point of view. When a kid gets signed at eight years old, how does that message potentially with them mentally? Because they could be released six months, a year, two years time. Whereas as you start picking them up a little bit older, they start understanding and grasping what they're actually in in the environment. So do you see that? Do you think that the DFB need to mandate that all clubs then should have maybe U11 as the minimum? Yes. That that would be the way I would I would say is perfect, um, particularly because I think it's so hard to say what is talent. Um, we all know we all know the numbers about late developers and um, kids being born on January the second and making it to the national team and all that kind of stuff. So all that all that picking talent is so messed up. Like we just have to admit that we are so bad at it. Um, because it's just impossible, because we never know at what stage we are. And there's a couple of really nice books about that. Um, I don't know if you guys read that uh, um, Talent Code, Daniel Coyle, I think. And uh, what was the other one? Rasmus Ankersen um, with, this, with the Talent Hotbeds. I forgot the name of the book right now. I don't know if you guys read it. No, I haven't. Yeah, it's from Rasmus Ankersen. Maybe you can and put it in the show notes afterwards, but it's a really good explanation on how what talent really is and um, how bad we are at spotting talent. Um, we just don't want to admit it, I guess. Yeah, it's one of those, right? I feel like when it comes to spotting talent, people have such a, a variety of opinions on what talent looks like. So like you look at, we got, I'll go back to obviously the start of this show where we spoke about the talent that you guys had in 2014 of your team and the characteristics Germany were a big, strong, ruthless, almost like a killing machine almost in that time. Is it a case now that you're trying to change the identity a little bit and maybe not looking at big, strong, physical players? You're looking at players of all sizes because we see it, especially in America, and obviously you spent a little bit of time over here, that the big, strong, physical guys normally get the step ahead and the smaller, less physically developed players kind of get pushed to the side. Do you see that happening in Germany? Yeah, by the way, Gold Mine Effect is the name of the book. Oh, okay. Back to my mind. Um, yes, that I think that happens in every country um, where it's about results because you always have the kids that are more developed, um, mostly born early in the year. But we're really trying to keep an eye on that, at least in, on my, in my club, in my team. We're really trying to keep an eye on that. Um, and it's also something... It's not necessarily that a, a huge or big player is bad. Um, I think the problem is that it's most of the time the guys that are not really athletic or not more athletic than other guys, they're just older, biologically older than other guys that are picked. If you pick a player that is really athletic, it's really strong and all that kind of stuff, he will always have that. I mean, look at Lukaku. Um, not a good player, but he's just a monster. And uh, I can see why he gets uh, or has so many caps and goals and all that kind of stuff. So... It's nothing wrong with being huge and athletic and all that kind of stuff. It's just, I think coaches make the wrong choices about players that are not athletic. They're just older um, and look athletic. 
So I, I have a question there. You, you spoke in a couple of times about players born at the start of the year. Um, kind of we know it as relative age effects is a name for it. Uh, and it's nothing new, right? I remember back when I was in university many years ago writing about relative age effect, and it's it's been around or been known about for a long time. But one whenever I look into it or whenever I listen to people talk about it, people are very good at kind of uh, describing the problem and and outlining the issue. But when it comes to finding a solution for it, it proves to be very difficult. Um, have you found any ways where you can kind of tackle that relative age effect and and get a positive outcome? Yeah, we actually have a starting this season. Um, you're allowed to um, have three players that play with the age group below. Um, you have to register them in front of the, uh, before the season. Um, so it's only three. So you cannot mix it up during the season. It's three players, um, which absolutely makes sense. Um, but then, actually, what we've experienced this season and the problem is, so you say, okay, I will. Or we think that we should push those three players down. Um, problem one is um, explaining it to the parents, um, which has worked out well um, so far with the players that we have. But the second problem is the coach from the team below, he says, well, but I already have a full squad. Um, why should you take away playing time from my players, which is a fair point from him as well. Um, so it's not always that easy in reality. Um, what I would propose, what I think is the best thing to do is you should um, make games with other clubs, like friendly games um, with other teams that are on your level and then say, okay, let's play. Um, for example, I have the under 13s. So let's say, okay, we play three times, five v five. Um, the oldest against the second oldest against the third oldest. So three fields and um, the coaches pick um, the players based on their biological age. So you can play against, in our case, against Bayern or against Stuttgart um, with players that are the same age. And we try to tackle that in practice too. So when we say, okay, we play two games in parallel, we play tall against tall or more developed against more developed and less developed against less developed because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I was going to ask when you choose the, when it comes to choosing those three players that you want to give game time in the year below, do you necessarily pick the youngest players or do you look at kind of physical size and, size and speed as well? Or how do you go about deciding that? Actually, this year it's the two youngest players. Um, we only picked two because there are only two that made sense. Um, it's the two youngest players, so it coincided, but I don't think it has to be like this. Um, I know from other, from other um, age groups, they have players born in June and they are just small, but they're good. So you put, push them down. So yeah, whatever whatever makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. So hopefully these players can uh, benefit from this new insight, new information going forward in terms of their development. But looking uh, towards the future, obviously we have the uh, the Euros coming up. That's going to be in Germany hosting the Euros. What can we expect from a, a Euro tournament in Germany? Well. Hopefully, better performance from the German side than we got used to in the last uh, huge tournaments. And I'm actually, yeah, I'm not that negative, to be honest. I think we we still have good players and we have a good coach now. Um, I think we can get somewhere. I don't think we can win it. Um, overall, I think um, the, the other nations can expect a really nice tournament because I think Germany um, is a really 
good host and we have good stadiums we have good organization we have goods well um, in infrastructure trains hotels and all that kind of stuff so i'm pretty excited for it i think it's going to be a really nice tournament what do you think the uh, the squad's going to look like are they going to go with a younger squad what's uh, what's the dynamic at the moment of the german team well some people put cross back into the game i don't know um I don't know if it's a good idea, to be honest. I like him as a player, but I don't think he fits the team because he's just another technical player. And we need more of a of a mix. Yeah, I think that when we when we manage to to get the best out of the team, um, we have a good starting eleven if nobody gets injured. Um, but I think the problem of of Germany is is more like the the B team, so the second options. Uh, which are just not there. No, and then on the crucial, sorry, and then on the crucial positions, as I mentioned, the the positions we always used to to be good. So center backs and number nines, we have only good players, but no world class players, and that's an issue. Maybe, uh, maybe that luck factor will maybe come back into it a little bit. I'm certainly looking forward to it. But when I was kind of over the last week, researching the, the stature of German, of the national team, it sprung a surprise to me, and I forgot all about this. Last year, Germany became the first team at the U17 level to win the uh, the Euros and the World Cup in the same year. So obviously the, the talent is there. It's just maybe the 2026 World Cup might be the next one. Maybe. Do you feel like it's going to be a case where this Euros might be the platform, the foundation then for the 2026 World Cup? to really kick on and have a strong go at it? Unfortunately, no, <laughs> because I don't know if you watch the Euros um, or the World Cup. I, I watched the, the World Cup, the under 17s World Cup a lot. And when I watched the final, I was excited, um, but also kind of like sad, because to me, this team is just another team of really developed players um, that are really, that are all of them, they're not, Biologically, 18 years old, and they are way older. They are all, they are all, all of them are ready for for senior football, especially when you compare them to the Spanish players or also the Argentinian players. So I don't think there is that much talent in the squad. Um, to be fair, so yeah, right now people are saying oh everything is okay with German football, but I say it's not. Um, and I, I'm I would be really surprised if many of those players will earn caps or if will earn a lot of caps. Let's say it like this. So Simon, I don't know if you're a betting man, but where where do you see Germany coming this Euros coming up this year? What what's your prediction? Quarterfinals. We go on in the quarterfinals. Interesting. What about, what about England? Where are they gonna finish? Same. Ooh. Same okay. thing. Well but it's always hard to predict the tournament because everything can happen. So if England meets France or meets England meets Germany, I don't know, then my prediction is already wrong. So hard to I'm I don't wanna predict tournaments because it's always the people that like when you do it at work, it's always the people who they don't watch a single game and then they win the betting competition. So yeah. yeah. I <laughs> like right. the, the difference between like the German realism and then me and you just getting overexcited thinking we're gonna win every <laughs> yeah. every game ever. <laughs> no, definitely. But no, Simon, this has been really fascinating episode. I've taken me personally, I've taken so much from you. So and I really appreciate your time and coming on and delivering. Um, we'll be sure to get the book out on our social media channels. And it, 
I'm I'm waiting for that English version so I can keep reading and reading and reading because it, you're a very knowledgeable man um, and we wish you the best of luck with the future. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Um, but before we do go, Simon, I might need to lend uh, a little bit of help from you. Jack's obviously got the question for me. Um, I know what we spoke recently and you've done pretty well at the Japanese question last week. Yeah. So I might need a little bit of help now. But Jack, just for the, the listeners, if you could repeat the question. So there are four England players that have played in six major tournaments in their career. And you name the four players that played for England and played in six major tournaments. So I looked at it from a cap point of view. I looked at like, I thought in my head, like who's got the most caps and surely that means that they've played in the most tournaments. I could be completely wrong. My first guest was Wayne Rooney. Correct. Um, my second guess would be, and I'm I'm sure on this one, David Beckham. No, really, no. How many tournaments was Beckham in then? Five. There's a lot that have had five major tournaments. I might have to get a fact check on that one. I thought he, I thought he was in it, but all right. So then my third one was a complete stab in the dark. Um, again for longevity, Steven Gerrard. Correct. Interesting. Yeah, that's me. I mean, I could start guessing and throwing out names. Simon, any any thoughts from you on what the third one might be? I'd probably throw in a goalkeeper. No, no. it's actually, actually a defender. Oh. Ashley Cole. Yeah. No, so, interestingly, Ashley Cole has played in more games in major tournaments than anyone else. He's played in 22 games in major tournaments. But the third player to play in six different major tournaments is Sol Campbell. Sol Campbell, really? Yes. Yeah, that was the tricky one for sure. Wow. Yeah, and the last answer is Jordan Henderson. Um, Interesting. Stinks under the radar a little bit. Uh, I think his first one, he just made a couple of substitute appearances. But yeah, the last answer is Jordan Henderson, who's the fourth player. Interesting. I, I would never have guessed that in a million years. Um but Jack, just to, before we do close, any last words from you? No, I agree with you. That was very insightful. Definitely going to look more into the uh, into the German new, new methodology um, and what they're doing work there with the 3v3 stuff. I think that's very interesting. And like Stu says, we're kind of anticipating the English version to come out because I think by you can tell by Stu's lack of pronunciation on the names, we're not going to be able to read it in German, but we're definitely looking forward to it. Down the English version, uh, come out so we can give that a read too. And then, uh, yeah, in the in the words of Kenneth Walsenholm, they think it's all over. It is now. <laughs> <laughs>